0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, we're going to be opening up the mailbag and answering some questions from our listeners. And to help me do that, I'm joined, I would say as usual here, but it's actually been kind of for the first time in a minute by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist,
1: a bestselling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how you been doing? Internally, I've been doing great. Externally, like many, I'm quite concerned about both my country, America, and the world. Well, what a what a mood to start us out on
0: here, Dad. But I think that that's a sentiment that, like you were saying, a lot of people are experiencing yeah. right now. And uh, you know, it's this really complex thing where you go about doing what you're doing and continuing with your day, and you're checking your own boxes while you're aware of so much that's going on in the world around you
1: and balancing that. I think of Nkosi Johnson's line really briefly. You may know this boy born with HIV in South Africa in the 1980s, and he lived till about age 12, became a real spokesperson for people with HIV AIDS in South Africa and in the world, especially children. He said, essentially, do all that you can with what you've been given in the place where you are in the time that you have.
0: And I think that what we can do right now Is open up a mailbag and try to answer some questions from our listeners and try to give some reasonably good advice here. So if you'd like to have a question answered on a future edition of the podcast, the best way to do that is by joining our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. You can also shoot us an email to contact at beingwellpodcast.com or leave a comment on uh, if you're watching the YouTube of this particular podcast episode. I have a YouTube channel. You can check it out. You can leave a comment down there as well, and we will probably see it. I would love to start with what I thought was an absolutely fantastic question. We got so many great questions. We we always get great questions, but we got really phenomenal questions this last round. And I'm uh, looking forward to getting into them. So here is our first question. I know it's important to listen to your partner, but how much listening is too much listening? My partner is a great talker, and I normally love that about him, but he tends to dominate discussions about us as a couple. He can talk without stopping for as long as I'm willing to not interrupt. And when I try to say a few things after 10 minutes of his talking, he'll still say things like, let me finish or don't interrupt me. When would you say is a fair length of time to listen to someone else during a discussion? I've asked him, and he normally says things like, when he is done saying what he needs to say, what
1: can I do here? What do you think, Dad? Well, my first reaction, actually, my first and second reaction, first reaction as a longtime couples counselor is to know that I never get the whole story from just one person. And I've routinely had the experience of really hearing something from person A that makes complete sense to me. And then when person B walks into the room and I give them a chance Mm -hmm. to talk and I get to know them a bit more, suddenly the picture gets more rounded. I don't say that to undermine uh, in any way, shape or form or disbelieve this person here. It's just a generic statement that often there's more to it than me see The second thing I would say uh, in the context of the first thing is that other than that, that short phrase, and I love that about him, this would immediately be a yellow flag for me as a therapist about what's going on in this relationship, not framed as what's going on, there's abuse here, but actually what's going on in the power dynamic and also the functional effect of what's called optimal distancing, which is a mode of relating in which we keep people at arm's length, we're related, but it constrains and controls the closeness of them. And the functional effect, obviously, perhaps not intended at all, but the functional effect of his behavior is to to keep his partner at at arm's length, at least in terms of conversations about their relationship. So I would immediately start wondering about the function that it served. And that's always a great twofold approach. One, what is being left out of the information Mm -hmm. you're getting, if anything? And then second, what's the function uh, that's being served by the behavior? Okay, all that said, my rule of thumb personally is that significant relationships need to be able to talk about talking and they need to be able to repair. Both of those are absolute gold standard virtues. I see you nodding here. Excellent. Without them, you know, relationships tend to get into trouble unless they're somehow perfectly suited to each other from the start in a larger social system that. Fully supports them. And that does happen. Your great aunt, my aunt, <laughs> Vicky, a wonderful- Once in a blue mood when wonderful all of being,
0: everything lines yeah. up
1: perfectly. <laughs> That's but right. It is
0: plausible. It's just That's unlikely. Right. That's
1: right. She and my uncle Fred uh, met each other, I think, in North Dakota. You know, they were married for 50 years. They lived in the same- Town. They lived in the same place. They such a specific cultural reference point. (laughs) They went to the same (laughs) church for their whole lives. And after he passed away eventually from Parkinson's, I was just talking with her about him. And she said, You know, my husband Fred and I never argued. And I actually believed that. Wow. So I think. It does happen. <laughs> but that's an exception. That kind of proves the rule. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Every, okay. Everyone else <laughs> needs to learn how to repair issues inside of that's their right, relationship. That's right. And be able to talk about talking. So so that's a thing. And then the other with regard to some sort of a rule. Yeah. My general rule, I think the default is 50-50 airtime. Mm. And as someone myself who you know, has gotten rewarded for being able to talk and talk well, and is also white and male and hetero and tall and, you know, has a PhD. I especially try to pay attention to making sure that I'm occupying less than my share of the airtime. 50% if it's another person, you know, less than a third if it's three people and so forth. So that's kind of a rule of thumb. And Mm -hmm. then you decide how much you want to talk. I mean, there's some people I just love listening to, and it's fine with me Mm -hmm. that they, you know, fill the space more than I do, you know. But on the whole, if you're not really comfortable with what's happening and it sounds like this questioner isn't, then the question becomes can you talk about talking?
0: Yeah. I think that my first question to them would be something along the lines of well, have you talked with them about this issue? Yeah. And it seems like the answer to that is probably yes. But then my follow-up question would be like, how have you talked with them about mm, this issue? Has, yeah. has the way that you've talked about it been to essentially complain about it, which could be very understandable here for starters, that you would complain about this? Or have you really been like, hey, this is a pattern that I've noticed. I would really like to be able to say my fair share inside of a conversation. And I'm also really happy to hear you out. But sometimes it feels like you just kind of keep going and there's not a lot of space for me to get in there. Mm, And can you be responsive to that in the future? And if they just can't, then that's a pretty significant issue. And maybe it's a significant enough issue that you bring in an external third party who can do some refereeing like a therapist or otherwise. I think I would just mostly reinforce what you were saying, Dad, where if you can't like get to a process level with these kinds of relationship issues, it's very, very hard to have a successful
1: relationship. I find myself wondering about him.
0: Yeah, and also kind of thinking from my own experience, a lot of the time when I've been in situations like the one that's being described where I've just kind of like blabbered, it's been because there was something else in me that I felt uncomfortable with or didn't want to get down to the level of, and the words were just kind of like a self-filibustering in a way kind of like really taking things to that like logical, word-driven, verbal level when I wanted to avoid some kind of other more emotive or feeling-driven or sensory level that was going on in me. But I'm wondering
1: what you think about that. Exactly that. And I love how you applied that notion of optimal distance that I used initially externally directed, keeping others within relationship but at bay at the same time. You applied that to keeping yourself at bay, as it were, some yeah, material totally, inside. Totally. It, you're kind of touching it, maybe in this long-winded, intellectualized, conceptualized, storytelling, yakety-yakety-way, whatever. are talking around it. But yeah. basically yeah. it's kept at bay. Um, yeah, I, I wondered about that. What is it that he's functionally trying to push away through this manner? And it's a flag that, quote, He tends to dominate discussions about us as a couple, right? Something about that in particular. What is it about that? And then I also wonder about his, or people's in general, felt sense of feeling heard. If you think of communication, what's the most important communication to give another person? Message received, right? So that handshake back and and until we get that sense, message received, we keep going. I mean, we keep transmitting rahrahrah, rah, 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 you know, and so i I think a lot about how people are about um recognizing that they have actually been heard when they've actually been heard. I think this is a great point dad i d-
0: I just want to flag this as I think an awesome point that that broad idea of like what's the most important communication to receive, like that you've been received by the other person,
1: yeah yeah exactly. Otherwise, ugh, it's deafening silence. And then you go into the still face research on, you know, toddlers in high chairs whose whose caregivers are staring at them with a poker face, acting as if no reception of the communications that the ten month old is giving and how oh, upsetting that is. yeah, we want to we want to feel felt, as Dan Siegel put it. So I would wonder, let's assume that the the woman I believe here, I'm not certain of that. Uh, the person who offered the question, presuming that this person is actually receiving the other who seems male here, huh, how come he's not getting it, right? Or could there be a way to help him kind of really get it? I got it, you know, I got it, mm -hmm. right? So I wonder about that as well.
0: Yeah, great. And to maybe close with just like one final wrap it up sort of statement here, there's a real difference between being long-winded which is just a, a tendency. Like I'm, I'm a chatty person. I use a lot of words. It's a tendency that I have to be conscious of, but it's neither like a good nor bad tendency. There are situations where it's useful, and situations where it's a little problematic. It is what it is. There's a difference between that and filibustering somebody else, like taking more time so they can't get their communication in. Both of them can be annoying. But only filibustering is really problematic because that's the only one where there's a power assertion being made inside of the relationship. So I think that for like the person writing in, one of the fundamental questions here is like, is this just this person's tendency? Or do you think that some of the other stuff that we've named
1: could be in the stew here as well? There's a broad principle to finish. Uh, it's, you could call it completing the gestalt. And you hmm. see it inside ourselves when we stop holding at bay that which wants to come forward. And the experience can complete. That which needs to be said can be said and heard. There's a sense of completion. And when the gestalt completes, it disappears. In effect, Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. completes. It's no longer a something or other. And so I think, um, you know, feeling into what would enable completion to occur for both of these people is a good inquiry.
0: That's great, love that.
1: All right, so let's get along to
0: the second question here. I want to repair when there are relationship ruptures, but everyone else in my family of origin seems to ignore these ruptures and it makes me anxious. How can I maintain healthy relationships with these family members when I can't get them to talk about and repair these issues?
1: Yeah. So first question, really important question is, am I getting preoccupied with issues between other people in a system that I'm part of, like a family? Mm. Or do I actually have a, forgive the metaphor, a dog in the fight, skin in the game, in that this rupture materially and directly affects me? Because it's ambiguous, in what this person is bringing up. And I I can understand it. If a person in a family system feels a kind of duty of care to others, then sometimes there's a place for us trying to step in as a peacemaker or referee or mender of ruptures for all kinds of reasons, sometimes purely selflessly. We're just trying to help Uncle Bob and You know, cousin Jimmy, who happens to be Uncle Bob's son, to actually talk with each other about the fact that Uncle Bob was a raging alcoholic when Jimmy was growing up. Okay. Other times it's just really weird and awkward. You know, for example, because we want to be at family events with Uncle Bob and cousin Jimmy in ways that just don't feel like, wow, people are about to throw, you know, turkey drumsticks at each other across the dinner table at Thanksgiving. Not again. Yeah, totally. So that's a question. Often, though, we can tend to get preoccupied with issues between other people in which honestly, we don't really have a stake and we're just borrowing trouble for ourselves. And that's something to kind of consider. Okay, let's set that aside then. Let's suppose that's not the issue because sometimes it really is. And then this is a rupture that directly involves the person asking the question. Then it's the classic question that you and I explored a lot in the later chapters in Resilient. Classic question. When do you hold them and when do you fold them? In other words, when do you step in and try to make something happen? And when do you look at it, maybe after an effort to repair? And you just go, you know, it's it's not going to go well. The costs are greater than the benefits. I'm just going to resize the relationship. I'm going to kind of tiptoe around that rupture. We're not going to fix it. Still, I'm going to have some kind of relationship with that person and we're going to carry on. And I'm going to carry on myself in ways that are as good as possible for my own well-being and my own moral commitments, including to other people. So there's there's that process. Trying to get other people to talk about ruptures and repair them who don't want to talk about them, you know, just the languaging of I cannot get them. You've tried and they are resisting your power, your influence, your efforts as sincere and well-intended as they are well, that tells you something. So then the question becomes, just finishing, I think we can maintain healthy relationships that are resized, that operate around major ruptures inside the space that operates around the rupture. It is healthy. It's unfortunate. It's painful, but you, you can do that. And you might take a look at the stuff that Forrest and I have written about repair to see if there's something that you haven't tried that you you know might have some uh, benefit for you. I think that was great, Dad. For me, questions like this, there's almost like a process that you
0: can go through with them. Like it, it can almost be checklisted. Yeah. And the first layer is, does anyone else think that something bad has happened? That's great. It is really hard to convince other people that something bad has happened when they just don't think that something bad has happened. Yeah. And you can go through that process, particularly when you're like really intimate with that system, when it's a family system of something like that, of to use your example, Dad, of like really kind of convincing everyone, hey, this is not normal that Uncle Bob or whoever, you know, is crushing a six pack a day every day and then screaming at his wife. You can fight that battle when the issues are on that level. Yeah. But if you find yourself over and over again in a situation where you think something bad has happened and other people don't, what that probably means is that you have a fundamental mismatch of either sensitivity or values with the people that you're surrounding yourself with. It's probably one or the other, if you think about it. Either things are landing harder on you than they're landing on other people, or you just have different values than they do. You have a value for kind of clear and coherent communication that maybe they don't. You've got a value towards certain kinds of like social norms that you experience as being disrupted when they just kind of don't agree with you. And when those are the differences, it's really hard to turn people around to your way of looking at it. And then it becomes about like acceptance and about boundaries. Exactly what you were saying, Dad. Like what kind of boundaries do you want to hold with this group of people that will allow you to interact with them in a way that feels comfortable for you? Maybe understanding that you've got more sensitivity towards these kinds of issues than the other people in the system do. So what do you think about that, Dad?
1: Beautifully said, and it goes to the person's comment in the very beginning that everybody else in the family system ignores ruptures, but this makes me anxious.
0: Absolutely, that's kind of what I got onto.
1: So that's kind of where I started. So not like it shouldn't be the case, but oh, that's interesting. What is it that makes you anxious about their ruptures that they are ignoring? To what extent are you actually implicated? And what else is drawing you into that if you're not directly implicated? Very often, it's that which is really tender and sweet and prosocial and moral and caring uh, and very interpersonally connected that draws a person in to feeling anxious about, you know, unrepaired breaches among others that they're close to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to kind of close by saying that I hope that this comes all across the right way because I am this person. So like a lot of my thinking about it has been driven by my my very felt understanding. I was going to ask so you, much... but then decided not to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's funny. Good like, on like, you. I You're am the anxiety,
0: <laughs> totally the like the anxiety-prone person who sees something happen in a social group. I feel uncomfortable, <laughs> kind of whether or not I'm directly implicated by it. Like, I get it. I get it, my dude. Whoever is sending this question in, um, and so any kind of like commentary that I have about it that seems thought out is because like <laughs> I've lived this life, and uh, so funny, you know. So I've 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 been where you are, and I think that for me, it has. Really become about my personal distress tolerance yeah. like it it's okay to have to go through a process with yourself where you realize that you actually are the canary in the coal mine yeah. and like you are that person and yeah. the the coal miners are looking around going everything's fine but it's too toxic for you and you can actually perform <laughs> a, a useful function in a system or in a friend group because you are that canary but there are also times when you have to recognize your own sensitivity and your own tendencies toward that feeling of anxiety in a a broader cultural or social system that just might not have that as the norm. So there's this kind of dance between you're doing something helpful for people and you're doing something valuable for yourself, but you're also doing what you can to build up those resources so you feel less disrupted by it.
1: Oh boy, deep, deep, just finishing. This connects the two things that I've been really reflecting on lately. Lately now is early November, 2023. And um, I've been reflecting a lot about what do we do when we care a lot about something that a number of other people just don't care about? They just don't seem to care. They don't care. What? You know, after you cycle yeah, through, it's tough. Oh, oh well, they're wrong, they're bad. They, you know, they should care. Whatever, just Shame pragmatically, and blame and the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, and then even if you look inside and you go, why do I care? Well, I actually do care about that. So you're, you're, then you're left with, well, I actually do care about this, and I'm surrounded by people who just don't care. What am I going to do? And that's a real exploration, which then goes to this other thing I've been uh, really reflecting on these days about how do we practice with futility. Whether it's at the interpersonal level, you know, our partner, our family system, our job, or our country, or our world. How do we practice with futility, including the, the category of things, the class of things in which we know it's futile, and yet it's still worth doing anyway? Mm. So I'll leave it there as seeds planted maybe to contemplate on.
0: Oh, sounds like an episode to me, Dad. You should, you know, write that on a, <laughs> on one of your yellow pads, one of your legendary yellow <laughs> legal pads, and we'll uh, we'll we'll turn that into a piece of content sometime. Yeah, I mean, look, we've we've done, I don't know, in seventy percent of the podcast episodes in the history of the podcast, I say something about the balance of acceptance and agency. Yeah, and right. that feels very like alive for that kind of topic yeah, that you're describing right. there. But I I love that language of like practicing with futility, because there are so many <laughs> things in life where we know that like this, this blood is not going to come out of this rock. <laughs> and yet there's a certain practice around like knowing that you've put in your effort.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I think that it's time for us to move on to our next question. Is there a reason why recurring thoughts, particularly ones like should-haves and could-haves, seem most intrusive late at night? What methods can I use to handle them?
1: That's such a great question. And it's such a common phenomenon. And the why, uh, I have two notions about it. Uh, First being one that you've already acknowledged for us in in the notes between us. In other words, when we're kind of at night, we're no longer doing, 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 and keeping stuff at bay. That's one thing. The other is that physiologically, we're kind of at a low ebb. So I think about that. What do you think?
0: I I mostly have a personal story about this one, uh, and it's what you were just describing. Where yeah, I used to listen to podcasts all the time. The reason that we started doing this podcast is because I listen to podcasts constantly. To out myself, they are more likely to be sports podcasts than uh, mental health self improvement podcasts. But nonetheless, podcasts all the time. And so, literally, when I whenever I was doing anything throughout the day, if I was like cooking myself a meal. If I was uh, driving to a, an errand, whatever it was, I would be listening to a podcast in the background. And listening to a podcast is pretty different from listening to music in terms of your engagement with it while you're doing it. And then what I found is that over time, I started to experience more anxiety than I was used to. I would, I would have this like pent-up feeling kind of inside of myself. And when I would lay down at night, I would f- have these pretty intense racing thoughts that would kick in. And it took me a long time to actually realize that listening to all of the podcasts was part of the problem because Mm -hmm. I was essentially never giving my, my system time to just like slow down and listen to itself because I was filling everything else with sound. And so I had to like actually correct and be thoughtful to have more time throughout the day when I wasn't listening or I wasn't talking. And I was just kind of being with whatever was going on rather than being in that state of doing that was pushing me away from... Whatever was down there that just needed to like have a moment throughout the day for me to think the thought that was in my head, or like work through the feeling I was having mm. about something, and and that, so that was a really interesting experience that I had that I think relates to this. So I would wonder about that, like how much doing are you doing throughout the day, mm-hmm. and are you giving yourself opportunities other than when you're laying down to go yeah. through some of that process?
1: Yeah, that's great. It kind of relates in my mind a little to. Uh, interesting research about the default mode network in the brain. Mm -hmm. And in that a certain amount of mind wandering is healthy because Mm -hmm. we just kind of churn, we sort, we sift. The brain is churning, sorting, sifting, kind of processing. There's a certain amount of um, ruminating in the good sense. I think there's a place like you're saying for that. Additionally, um, I'm thinking of the particular uh, type of Uh, intrusive thoughts the person's talking about, uh, should-haves and could-haves. Distinct from, let's say, worries about other people or worries about one's own health, this is more in the category of mistakes, regrets, and remorse. And just to that point, people might be interested in material that you and I have done already in the podcast about that. I also gave a couple talks about it for my Wednesday meditation program maybe six months ago three months ago perhaps, related to my own mega processing in the last uh, year and a half of some mistakes, regrets, and remorse. And so I I think there's a place for processing during the day the topics that keep being intrusive at night. It's as if your unconscious is knocking on your door saying, hey, we're still here. You need to pay attention to us. So that could be kind of a clue. And then bring it out of the, the darkness of the evening into the light of day and really you know, process it, work through it you know in skillful, safe ways. Uh, hopefully over time, it will then be more finished. It'll be finished business, and it mm. won't keep bothering you.
0: Great, yeah, I think that's really good advice.
1: We'll be right back to the show in just a
0: minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science, lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one, probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com beingwell and use code 25BEINGWELL to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell code 25beingwell. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit UpliftDesk.com slash BeingWell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk, that's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com/beingwell for 5% off your order. That’s up liftdesk.com/beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein and particularly more healthy protein into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's ultimate sampler pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text BEINGWELL, to 64,000. Get your discount. Text being well to 64,000. That's B E I N G W E L L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com beingwell. So let's move on to our fourth question. My question is about how not to leave it all on the field. I tend to get really absorbed in my work or relationships, pour myself into it, and then feel exhausted or have a little bandwidth for myself. How can I work with this habit of giving all of myself away to other people?
1: And obviously there are cultural frames here because you know we tend to have a culture of heroic individualism. Then sometimes you can throw in gender socialization, you know, different kinds. So it's all about, you know, giving to the family or, you know, in various kinds of ways. So whatever might be on the outside, it's worth looking at, I think, two things. One is what is it that draws a person to leaving it all in the field as it were? And second, what is the strength of the inner forces that are self-nurturing? It can often be really helpful to focus actually on the inner forces of self-nurturance because they're direct, they're right under your influence. For many people, if they were to deliberately set aside five minutes a day in which they're just marinating in enjoyable well-being promoting activities, that actually might be a 100% increase. In the amount of time they spend nurturing themselves that day, from five minutes to 10 minutes a day. So that's one thing to really look at. A second thing has to do with what's that engine of goal directed performance, whether it's to nurture others in a caregiving context or in a work context. What is that engine? And that's an engine I've been looking at really hard these days. It also goes to the machinery broadly of craving that in Buddhist psychology is very articulated. I myself, as you probably noticed for us, I have a mind that I see a goal, I move toward the goal. It's very straightforward mm-hmm. for me. <laughs> so, yeah. See a way for things totally. to be better, make a plan to have them be better, implement your plan, revise, keep going. <laughs> to a fault. And yet, you know, if your ship is sinking, you probably want me on the boat. because you know, sure. yeah. And and so lately, I've been just laughing in my mind. It's like a sweet dog. Maybe I've used this metaphor before with you. I don't know. Uh, this little doggy that is chasing the red ball. And of course, dogs chase the ball. They're meant to chase the ball. It's their nature to chase the ball. It's a good thing to chase balls in many situations. But it has the dog running into traffic, knocking people over. And I'm internally, I'm needing to say more and more to myself, Ricky, you don't need to chase the ball don't chase the ball let the ball go and so there's something there for people i think to look at almost generically that pursuit of the dopamine hit the so-called molecule of more that kind of sense of internal insistence or pressure or mustness then you start getting yourself in the mix fear of looking bad if you don't get the ball you know wanting to claim the ball for yourself wanting to get credit for getting the ball all that selfing and so forth. And at the end of the day, ask yourself if you dialed back by 1%, 5%, you would probably increase by 100% your own personal well-being. That's a highly leveraged investment.
0: Yeah, for me I wonder about the secondary gains here and I wonder about what's what's powering this behavior. Yeah. Because there's this really common pattern that you see with any kind of habit formation where it starts with some kind of a motivation for the behavior that creates it often a psychological motivation sometimes a practical one and then over time the behavior itself becomes self-perpetuating it become it transforms into just a habit that a person has in this kind of a situation there's a really common pattern that you'll see in people where the person gives a lot to others they then feel underappreciated for what they've given they say hey Maybe the problem was that I didn't give enough. And if I just give more, I'll be properly appreciated for it. Mm. They give more, they aren't appreciated for it, and then they start feeling resentful about it. This is pretty understandable for starters. Like, this is a normal pattern for people to have. And one of the most useful processes that I've gone through recently is taking a look at some of my own behaviors, particularly in uh, social settings. I'm looking at what the secondary gains associated with Mm. them are. What am I getting out of this behavior? And so one of my questions for this person, because the framework of this, of this question is I'm giving all of this and I'm getting drained and I'm giving all of myself away and I just can't stop and it's a bad habit. Well, okay, there's a framework there of I'm doing all of this stuff, I'm not getting anything back, teach me how to stop. And my first question would be like, well, what's your motivation for doing it? What if you're getting something out of it? And you need to be kind of honest with yourself about what it is that you're getting in return for your behavior. Like for me, I've given the example a couple of times on the podcast about being the planner for a group, and I got a little salty about it for a minute. And then I realized that when I'm the person who's planning everything, I get so much out of it. It's always where I want it to be. It's always the time I want it to be. It's always the group of people I want it to be. I get a lot out of that effort, regardless of whether or not anybody goes out of their way to say thank you at the end of the day. And so I think in a similar way, you can kind of take a look at this sort of a pattern and ask yourself, hey, what am I getting out of it? And am I getting enough to keep doing it? and really kind of approaching it from that very practical angle can be really effective.
1: Beautiful. I think you nailed it.
0: Oh, thank you, Dad. I appreciate that.
1: That's great. Let's see the next question.
0: So here is our fifth question. I struggle with competitions, mostly because I hate losing. This (laughs) leads to feelings of jealousy at work, Issues with inferiority, unnecessary or an unreasonable comparison with other people, and difficulty even being happy for the achievements of friends.
1: What could somebody do to work with these issues? I'm competitive myself in certain kinds of ways. So several things here. First, temperament. I think there's just a natural temperamental spectrum of people who tend to be intensely competitive and sometimes connected with a certain amount of aggressiveness and and domination. I don't mean that in a critical way. I just mean it kind of neutrally and descriptively. But, you know, it could be a person's just, bad. that's their DNA. And then we have, you know, socialization and events in person's lives, their current conditions. There could be these factors. So trying to understand the factors. Then I would wonder about, of course, And by the way, we're using that phrase I would wonder about a lot because it's a good phrase. But anyway, uh, a person's self worth. uh, The more that a person has genuine self worth deep down inside, not just self esteem, but deep emotional, saturated self worth, then the less we're caught up in competition and social referencing. And then what remains can still be a beautiful thing the pursuit of excellence. I think of Thomas Keller, you know, French Laundry, great chef. I, I remember watching a video of him and Anthony Bourdain and a couple other chefs going to the French Laundry, he's probably at this point, 20, 30 years old. And uh, Thomas Keller was asked, is it ever possible to produce a perfect meal? And he said, no, you never attain perfection. That's what makes it perfection. There's always something else, yeah. right? And so he's, but he's not competing with others. He's pursuing that perfection for his own reasons. And in much the same way, we can pursue excellence. We can pursue high levels of contribution, uh, mastery, high levels of virtue, just in our own right. And I think that's increasingly a good way to think about it. In other words, if if no score was being kept, if there was no social comparison, if there were, if there was no one in the stands, would you still pursue the excellence you're pursuing? And then mm-hmm. to the extent that the answer can become yes, then you're in a good place.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's all great Dad. I, I don't really have a ton to add for this one because I think that you've already hit most of the things that I would have said here, which is just about you know the classic comparisons, The Thief of Joy. And I think that that's totally true mm-hmm. in this because I think that this might be less of like a competition issue and more of just a general comparison issue. Mm, In yeah. the question, there are some of the words like jealousy, comparison, difficulty being happy for the achievements of friends. Okay like so what's what's uncomfortable about that for you? And it's because you feel like you're you've got A and they've got B and B is more than A and you feel bad. And I think that very practically what a person could do here if they wanted to is take a look at the spaces where comparison enters their life and see if they can do less of those things. Uh, The classic one is social media. There are plenty of other things that I'm sure a person could look at throughout their day as like, this makes me start comparing myself to this other person over there. And then you could ask yourself just the very practical question, like, how could I do less of that? Then on the other hand, you could see if there are some ways to fill yourself up. Can you do some gratitude journaling? Can you take a moment of reflection at the beginning and end of the day where you go over the things that uh, happened that you appreciated or enjoyed? the things that you have that you're grateful for, all of that good stuff. But I would mostly just reinforce what Rick was saying about the self-worth aspect of the thing, because that gets around so much of this other content.
1: Yeah. I'd like to drop in a couple more things that that are quite uh, real for me. So one part has to do with recognizing the biological rootedness of social comparing In our nature as social primates, we're designed to compare ourselves to others and part of the capacity for shame, broadly, for feelings of inferiority and and being less than, well, that's kind of a necessary basis for also the co-evolution of our beautiful capacities for altruism and generosity and charity, because if we're not able to feel that wince of shame or you know remorse, then there's no basis for the development of healthy altruism. That's why most other species are not as altruistic as humans are. So the, in other <laughs> words, it's kind of normal, of course, to compare yourself. So think of that initial wince of, eh, you hear somebody you're comparing us, you know, that this kind of like you, or they're successful in a way you're not, or they've had a good thing happen, or they look beautiful in a way that you don't, or whatever it might be. There's that initial, eh. well, maybe that could be understood as a kind of so called first dart of life, just an inherent, understandable, normal, emotional twinge. But then we don't have to add the second darts, piling on getting caught up around it, ruminating about it, it can simply be a few seconds in which we're practicing of, ah, okay, feeling it, letting it flow, and then moving on. But one of the great antidotes, as you know, is one of those force, boundless realms, so-called in in the Buddhist tradition, of uh, happiness about the welfare of others. In Pali, a key language of early Buddhism, mudita. Mudita. And we can cultivate the trait of Mudita, really, so that increasingly those first darts of understandable twinges land in a sea of habitual Mudita, habitual happiness about the welfare of others, cavelling for their good fortune.
0: Well, that's great, Dan. I'm really glad you brought that in at the end here. I think that's really useful. And If it's okay, I think it's time for us to go to our sixth and final question, which I've been really looking forward to because we haven't had an opportunity to talk about this directly on the podcast yet, and I've really been wanting to. I'd like to know more about the notion of being a highly sensitive person, or HSP. What do you think about it? I identify as highly sensitive, and I've realized that accepting my sensitivity earlier would have led to a lot more healing and a lot less shame. That said, I have complex PTSD, and it seems like there's a lot of crossover in symptoms between it and HSP. Same thing for other diagnoses like autism spectrum disorders and ADHD, both of which can include hypersensitivity. So what's going on here? Well, Dad, what's going on here?
1: What's going on here is a lot of complexity. There are a lot of chickens (laughs) and a lot of eggs. (laughs) Which came first? A lot of chickens and a lot of eggs. Yeah, Yeah. This actually makes me kind of reflect weirdly about the history over the last 2,000 years in the Western tradition that I'm, you know, more schooled in than Eastern traditions around of psychology. There was a lot of focus early on about temperament, the four mm. humors, so-called. Then then along came Freud, and everything became about, you know, early childhood experiences on the black slate of the kid, the, you know, the tabula rasa of the child, and, you know— that became the inquiry. And then in the 1970s and 80s in the US, uh, certainly there was a a strong push back in terms of temperament. And gosh, I sure wish I could think of the name of the psychologist out of Harvard who really pushed temperament studies strongly. It'll come maybe. Anyway, temperament, it's a thing. There is a natural variation in temperaments. And Their joke about parents, if you have just one kid, you believe in nurture. If you have two kids, suddenly you're a convert to nature because your two kids, same environment and sharing a fair amount of genes can be quite different temperamentally, right? So temperament's the thing. In that context, I think there's definitely, certainly a fraction, a significant percentage of newborns uh, that you can simply observe as infants, as toddlers, and as preschoolers, long before much of life has had a chance to land, particularly in relatively normal range, decent, good enough so-called environments, some kids are really sensitive. They're really sensitive. Loud noises, tastes, and certainly there's a correlation that I've observed. I don't know what the exact science is on it, but there's a correlation between those sensitivities and what we might think of as people who are more neurodivergent. So the two definitely, I think, go together in terms of just pure constitution. And then comes trauma. Then comes life experiences. So life experiences landing on a very sensitive person are going to tend to have more impact than on a more phlegmatic, just kind of whatever, what me worry kind of person. <laughs> so obviously then sensitivity could tend to predispose somebody to ptsd not letting the environment off the hook just acknowledging that in the stress diathesis model it's a combination of what is happening along with the vulnerability you know of the person offset by resources which may or may not be present so all that's to me really really normal and just finishing as both medicine and psychology have evolved, especially in the last 20 years. There's been a growing appreciation for the individualization of care and a mm-hmm. broadening mm-hmm. of what our friend Gabor Mate calls the myth of normal. What is normal anyway, right? I get it about normal molecules of water, you know, two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen, gotcha, right? But normal human being huh you know it's a really broad range and so it's really important to acknowledge where you are and normalize you you are normally you you are you whoever you are are incredibly normal as you right and validating that and appreciating that and then constructing a world around you that's a good fit for you is to me really appropriate to do with a lot of nurturing and compassion for yourself
0: to fill in a little bit of extra information about some of the things that you mentioned, there, Dad, I think that Jerome Kagan was Kagan. the professor Thank at you. Harvard. Kagan, yeah, Thank that you. that you're referring to there, did a lot of work on temperament, late professor, and the the popularization of the phrase "highly sensitive person" comes from Dr. Elaine Aaron, who wrote the book. I believe it's literally titled "The Highly Sensitive Person" or something yeah. very similar to that, and was talking about this kind of temperamental constellation of traits that you're describing here, Dad. And I'll just begin by totally echoing exactly what you're saying, that there's this kind of long arc in the history of psychology that you can take a look at if you take a step back, where different things are kind of valued at different moments in time. Some of that, and I'm not a clinician here, this is just coming from reading research and having conversations with people who know a lot more about this than I do. And one of the common critiques that has been made of the DSM is that if you read through—and it's an issue that uh, clinicians have to deal with all the time—is the notion of rule-outs, where a lot of the diagnoses have a lot in common with other similar diagnoses. And figuring out— the label to put on a person's experience can be a very fraught process that you would know a lot more about than I would hear, Dad. But that's just, again, my understanding. Mm -hmm. And also comes in for things like insurance purposes in terms of what gets put on their permanent file, what kinds of insurance coverage the person can qualify for around different sorts of diagnoses. And something that's important to know here is that HSP is not a diagnosis. HSP is a kind of loose way of referring to people who have a general temperament. You are not going to find that in the DSM. Also helpful to know that complex PTSD is not a diagnosis that appears in the DSM. So it is also technically not something that you can be diagnosed with for the purpose of coverage by insurance, which is this whole other thorny question that hopefully we will not be getting into on this episode because it's a real mess. And I hate it. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about anything that I've said so far,
1: Dad. My first thought is how smart you are. And that's great. Uh, so, thanks, buddy. Yeah. I appreciate
0: it. <laughs>
1: yeah. And please finesse anything
0: I've said because I've done a lot of hand waving of like a ton of detail here.
1: It's great what you're saying. And you're you're getting at what sometimes is called, I don't know if you've heard this, the distinction between lumpers and splitters.
0: No, I actually haven't heard this. This is a new one. I thought you were going to go with like differential diagnosis or something like that. Oh, I'm going to work for you know, right Whatever there. it is,
1: yeah. Yeah, and it, <laughs> well, particularly in the social sciences, sciences, but it's also true maybe in the physical sciences, you have people who tend to create broad generalizations or they find, including broad general principles, that's lumping things together. Compared to people who tend to analytically find distinctions and differences that split phenomena apart into different subgroups and subgroups of subgroups and so on, lumpers and splitters. I like the benefit of both of those in in this way. On the one hand, I think there's a place if a person can do this, you know, there's a thing, I think it's called medical student disease, where basically medical students, they all think they have the disease of the week in their rotation through the hospital. And you have to be careful about that. On the one hand, but if you can be careful about that, get a publicly available copy of the DSM, whatever it is these days, six or something or other. And it's five, but five you know, R. We might have slipped up a few six while I wasn't looking, but yeah, yeah
0: exactly. There's like a, a versions on versions
1: of it totally. Check it out, and it's interesting. Do be careful. Do be careful with this, particularly if you do not have a license as a mental health professional. But it's kind of interesting to think about walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. And so sometimes it's helpful to see how the pattern comes into focus. Oh, wow. Got it. You know? Other times, I think it's really also helpful to deconstruct these diagnostic categories because a diagnostic category is a form of lumping. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it becomes sometimes helpful, as, as I've done for myself a lot of my own practice, is to kind of use the diagnost- diagnostic category, but not let it use me. And to use it to kind of guide inquiry, particularly when it comes to this territory of neurodivergence, I tend to think it's really helpful to not be much of a lumper, but be more of a splitter, right? How are they doing with attention? Are they disrupted by stimuli? internally arising or externally produced you know how are they socially what's their empathy like can they tolerate disorder are they okay with changes of routines you know do they get drawn into hyperfocusing you you suddenly you're going in different directions which vary yeah. depending on the person so i find there that kind of independence not being bound by the diagnostic category is really really helpful and also on their other side of it, you don't feel like you're getting pigeonholed, stereotyped, and slotted into a little box by somebody who's got to write a prescription and fill out an insurance form for you in six minutes.
0: Yeah, totally. And like sensitivity is a is a broad category to use your your example here, Dad. Highly sensitive person, the back of a napkin math is that twenty to thirty percent of people would qualify for being a HSP in some way that's a lot of the population that's a lot of people it's like 2 to 3% of children are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders so hsp is literally 10 times as common if we were to think of it as a diagnosis even though it's not but if we were to think of it as one it would be 10 times as common as like an autism spectrum disorder so it's good to kind of look at that scaling and to kind of think about how uh, broad or narrow the qualifications for receiving that acronym
1: are when we conceive of it. Does that kind of make sense, Dad? Oh, it's great, and it kind of raises the question of, well, gee, if 30% of the population is highly something.
0: How highly is
1: it, really? Yeah, 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 exactly. Where's the center of the distribution? And if that's actually true, maybe we need to recalibrate our notion of, of being a human. Particularly thinking about this, If you're not being crushed daily by an intense workload, what would be the natural sensitivity that could develop in more benign circumstances, right? In other words, when people are not being numbed and blunted and squashed by their environments.
0: I think this is a key point.
1: And it's a key point because,
0: again, if we go back to Dr. Aaron's work on highly sensitive person, which I I think it's phenomenal that she popularized this this notion and really kind of codified it in this way. If I'm remembering correctly, I think that the book actually came out in the late 90s. Mm. And that was a very different moment in time. If you just think about like our cultural conception of individual sensitivity has come a long way from that moment in time. And now we kind of have in some ways... More nuanced understanding of these various categories, the ways in which a person can be sensitive, maybe more like broad scale acceptance of just the notion that like a person might might care about the things that happen to them in that kind of sensitive or attuned way. And so what at the time was a real kind of insight in the culture or this really like different way of thinking about this has sort of become more normative over time in terms of how we conceive of, of this variation in sensitivity, exactly like yeah. you're describing, Dad. And it's kind of helpful to understand the context of these ideas and like the moment in time that they come from when we conceive of them.
1: That's really great.
0: Awesome. I think that we've come to the end of that one. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add at the end here, Dad?
1: Just one thing which will not surprise you in that all this makes me reflect on that which is not disturbed deep down inside us all. That which is a refuge in which we can be ourselves thoroughly in ways that deep down have a a sense of quiet in them, a sense of stillness and all rightness deep down inside that is accessible for anyone. Most people can report that they know what I'm talking about here, and deeper than personality. And I wanna just affirm that there is indeed that level inside us all, innate in our Mm -hmm. own biology, amazingly. Whatever might be true, ultimately, right? But just pure, good old-fashioned materialism, innate in our own biology, is that undisturbable core, unshakable Mm -hmm. core. And recognizing it, coming home to it, feeling it, Deepening the trait of centering in it, protecting it, fully good things to do for everybody. Mm, Great.
0: That's a great note to end our conversation on today, Dad. Thanks for offering that here at the end. I really appreciate it. I thought this was a great edition of The Mailbag, and I really enjoyed answering the questions from our listeners. If you'd like to get a question answered on the podcast, the best way to do that is by joining us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show, and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Also, if you're watching this episode on YouTube, you can leave a comment down below and uh, let me know if you have a question that you'd like to have answered. And also, you can send us an email at contact contactatbeingwellpodcast.com. Our first question got to situations where one member of a partnership tends to dominate the process conversations about that partnership. And one of the points that I made is that it's really important to differentiate between people who are just chatty or wordy and somebody who's actually trying to filibuster the conversation. In other words, somebody who's trying to control what gets said by saying a lot of words. And Rick focused on the general importance of being able to have a talk about talking, a uh, process conversation about how you do process conversations. Because if you're not able to have that kind of operational conversation with your partner, it's going to be really difficult to make it through just the natural bumps and bruises and problems that emerge inside of a relationship. Effectively, if you can't address and solve issues together, Well, what are we doing here? Because the reality is that almost everybody is going to encounter a lot of issues in the course of their partnership. And there are a thousand different pieces of advice that we could give about how to have a good process conversation with somebody. But the first step to having a good process conversation is feeling like you can talk to them about the issue. And so the first thing that I would wonder in this situation with this person is whether or not they've expressed these issues to their partner in a uh, clear way and that they've been handled separately outside of when they're trying to engage with some other kind of problem. Because we tend to leave problems like this until they come up, when the reality is that generally situations are benefited by us being able to take a step back from them and say, hey, we're having this general kind of issue in our relationship, and we really need to spend some time figuring it out here. We went from there to answering a question about dealing with repair more directly. This was one where there are various relationship ruptures inside of a family or friend situation, and they make the person anxious, and they feel like nobody else really cares about repairing these ruptures, so what can they do? We focused on a couple of important things here. First, does anybody else in the system think that there's a problem? Because if it's just you who thinks that there's an issue, there's either something cultural going on, something values-based going on, Or you're a little higher sensitivity than the other people in the system. Another possibility is that they've become really acculturated, really uh, used to some kind of problematic way that the system is functioning. And yes, when you draw people's attention to it, they're gonna resist that because systems like to remain the same. They do not want to change. And then you're essentially left with two options. First, you can try to keep on expending effort to change the system, or second, You can try to relate to the system differently in a way that will be more comfortable for you. Maybe this means doing some things to deal with your own anxiety. Maybe it means holding different kinds of boundaries with the people who are in the system so you feel less anxiety. Uh, Maybe it means spending a little bit less time around these people. Whatever it is, what can you impact that you have more direct control over? Third question we talked about dealing with intrusive thoughts late at night. Uh, Where I shared a personal story about listening ironically to too many podcasts during the day. And that kind of took away the time that my brain had to just process through and have the strange stuff that comes up and people's brains come up and process out and just have it be dealt with in the course of a day. So every time when I laid down at night, I would have those kinds of intrusive, erasing thoughts that the person was describing. And so it was really helpful for me to move out of doing into more being in the course of a normal day, so that I would have uh, less in the bank of my mind that had to get kind of worked through when I laid down to go to bed at night. The fourth question asked, how can we leave less of it on the field? How can we give less of ourselves away to other people when we have that habit? And I thought it was really interesting that Rick started by talking about the cultural context of that kind of a question, how different people in different positions and different cultures are often acculturated into that kind of relentless giving. And uh, that can certainly be a reason that that habit develops for somebody. I focused a little bit more on the psychological benefits that somebody gets out of that behavior and how it can be really, really helpful and has been really helpful for me to take a look at what are called secondary gains. And these are kinds of hidden benefits that a person might receive from something that looks like they're not necessarily getting anything out of it. We then talked about dealing with competition and comparison before we closed with a question about the notion of a highly sensitive person and highly sensitive people in general. Specifically, the question noticed that there was a lot of overlap in symptoms between HSP and ADHD and complex PTSD and autism spectrum disorders. And are these all the same thing? Are they different things? Are they are they comorbid? Like, what's going on here? And we gave a pretty lengthy answer to that question. It probably could have just been its own episode. We could have blown it up pretty easily. And to summarize it, I really like what Rick said about the difference between being a, oh God, I'm forgetting his exact terminology, basically like a grouper or a separator. You know, are you the kind of person who likes to think in terms of broad categories, or are you the kind of person who likes to really separate things out into different and specifically codified groups. So yes, highly sensitive person is kind of like a blanket phrase that maybe could be applied to some people who are ADHD, some people who are complex PTSD, some people who are autism spectrum, and some people who don't have any kind of a diagnosis or an acronym or whatever at all, because HSP is like 30% of the population. Autism spectrum disorder is like 2% of the population or 3% of the population, depending on what data you're looking at. But the point is that it is just a much broader category that has, therefore, a much less restrictive kind of diagnostic criteria associated with it. So a lot of what's happening here is that there's just a wide top end of the funnel, and we're kind of boring down to these more and more specific diagnoses or these more and more restrictive diagnoses as we go. And just to kind of end with a final thought here— I'm personally a little skeptical about the diagnosisification of this whole thing anyways. Like when 30% of the population qualifies for a diagnosis, maybe it's not a diagnosis at all. Maybe it's just like a part of the human experience, or maybe we're just talking about a general distribution where some people are a bit more sensitive, some people are a bit less sensitive, and it can be helpful to kind of understand where you lie on that spectrum. And this helps kind of get around some of the overly medical, often quite judgmental language that we can apply to these kinds of different situations. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe wherever you're listening to it now on, maybe leave a rating and a positive review. And hey, if you really want to help us out, you can tell a friend about the show. It's the best way that we have to reach more people. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.